Please sit down. Uh, Danny's already kindly prayed, so I wonder if you could turn back to uh, Esther, Esther, the book of Esther, chapters 8 to 10. Esther 8 to 10. It's a verse on the screen behind me. It's written by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, I don't know about you, but there are quite a lot of times when I don't feel like rejoicing. You wonder what Paul's experience of life was when he wrote that down. I mean, had he been wrestling a screaming four-year-old for the entirety of the morning? Had he just had that diagnosis that he was terrified of? Was he sitting at home alone for another evening on his own, lonely? You say rejoice in the Lord, Paul, but how am I supposed to do that? And the Lord is near. Well, I can accept that that God is everywhere, but frankly, he doesn't feel that near a lot of the time. You say he's near to me? Yet the Christian life is supposed to be one of joy, of security, of certainty, of hope. And as we finish Esther, we're going to see why. Because Esther is a book that ends with enormous rejoicing. And the Christian life is supposed to be one of knowing that the Lord is always near to you. And as we've looked at Esther, we've seen that the God who's not mentioned by name in this book, the God who's certainly not mentioned in our culture, is very near to us. So near that he's ordering every little detail of our lives for his glory and for our sake. Now, as we come to the end of Esther, just briefly, we need to understand where we've come from the beginning. If you remember, Esther is in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire around 480 BC. She's an orphan Jewish girl who lives with her cousin Mordecai. King Xerxes, king of Persia, is blanked by his pushy wife Vashti. And so, unable to get her to come into his presence, he decides to have a sort of beauty, well, more of a sex contest, for every young, pretty virgin in the empire he can get his hands on. And lucky old Esther, she's taken, not volunteered, and wins. She becomes head of the harem, queen of Persia. Mordecai, her cousin, shortly afterwards, he overhears a plot to kill Xerxes. He reports it through Esther, and Xerxes is saved. The problem is, rather than honoring Mordecai, Xerxes promotes the Jew-hater Haman to prime minister. And Haman, very quickly, offended by the way Mordecai will not bow to his ego, decides on a proportional response. He's going to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth. An edict that they would all be put to death. Xerxes, weak and happy to receive a lot of money, runs with Mordecai's plan. And Mordecai, um, with Haman's plan. And Mordecai then puts on sackcloth and ashes and before the Lord repents. He, he demonstrates that he's desperate for the Lord's help. He persuades Esther to use her royal position to beg for mercy for her people. And she says, if I perish when I go in, I perish. Now last week we saw Haman was hoisted on his own petard or, well, skewered on his own stake anyway. The 75-foot pole he put in his front garden to stick the Jew Mordecai on, he ends up stuck on because Xerxes discovers that he's planned to kill his own wife. 
And as Haman, the evil one, is defeated, we find Mordecai, the righteous one, is exalted. He's raised in his position of authority in the empire. Now, as we've gone through Esther, we've understood this book in different ways. In chapters 1 and 2, it was the questions that the text made us ask that helped us understand it. Why are God's people so compromised? Why are there all these coincidences which seem to benefit them? In Esther 3 and 4, we saw it was the characters that help us understand what was going on. Mordecai, the epitome of evil who hated the people of God. But Esther, sorry, Haman, the epitome of evil. I'm getting that wrong a lot today, aren't I? Haman, the epitome of evil who hated the people of God. But Mordecai and Esther beginning to come through, beginning to trust the Lord. Last week, we saw it was the way the story made us feel that helped us understand it. As we, we laughed as Haman got his comeuppance as the Lord organized the rescue of his own people. And this week, what helps us understand Esther 8 to 10 is the way that the book is structured and the way that the writer repeats certain things for us. You see, Esther 8 to 10 mirror Esther 3 to 4. They show us how God has turned the world upside down. It's the first thing we're going to see this morning, that God is the God of reversals. Have a look at Esther chapter 8, verse 1 with me. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came to the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. Haman's stuck on a stake. The very same time, Mordecai is taken into the palace, just as Haman used to be in the palace. But it's not just that Mordecai is welcomed into the presence of of the king, verse 2, the king took off his signet ring, which had been reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. That signet ring, which was the symbol of Xerxes' power, which had been given to Haman in chapter 3, verse 10, is now given to Mordecai. The, the house in which Haman had plotted the death of Mordecai now becomes Haman's home. But but there's still an issue in the Persian Empire. The one who wrote the decree of death is dead, but the decree still stands. And and so we read in verse 3, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Just two chapters before, Esther was more worried about her own skin. But now she weeps as she begs for mercy for her people. And you see how Haman's described in verse 3? He's Haman the Agagite. We've seen that description before. It's used again in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Uh, The Agagite, Agag, well, the writer's reminding us, Agag was king of the Amalekites back in the time of King Saul. And the Amalekites had one thing in common. They hated the people of God. They wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. So Haman versus Mordecai isn't just evil versus good or or nasty versus nice. This is a a world that hates the people of God versus the people of God. How is it going to be resolved? Well, with Haman dead, Xerxes gives Mordecai instructions to send out another decree to let the Jews defend themselves. It's sealed with the king's ring, just like the first decree was sealed with the king's ring. It's sent by Royal Mail Express delivery, just as the first decree was sent by 
Royal Mail Express delivery. And its content is an exact reversal too. Just put your finger in Esther 8 and turn back with me to Esther 3.13. Esther 3.13. Here's the first decree in Esther 3.13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day in the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And now turn back to Esther 8 and verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder their property of their enemies. It's exactly the same, reversed. It happens on the same day we see in chapter 8, verse 12. It receives the same publicity, but the results are very different. Because the first decree brought the threat of death and misery. After it, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes. He poured mourning, literally, physically, over his head. It was a cry to God for mercy. But look how Mordecai is dressed now in verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence... He was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. He goes out dressed like a king. The result of Haman's decree in Susa had been confusion, bewilderment. And the Jews, they'd joined with Mordecai in fear. They'd also dressed in sackcloth and ashes. But now the result of this second decree is joy and celebration throughout the city. And it's not just for the Jews. Did you see that in verse 17? In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. See, back at the start of the book in chapter 1 and 2, Mordecai had said to Esther, keep your head down, love. Don't admit to being one of the people of God. It'll get you into trouble. But, but now, they don't want to fit in with the, the culture around them. Now they're, they're happy to stand out as the people of God. Now the best thing in the world is to be a Jew. At the start of the book of Esther, the people of God wanted to fit in with the world because they couldn't see where their God was in the mess of life in Persia. But now the world wants to join the people of God because their God has turned history upside down. See, God is the God of reversals. Death to life. Sinful misery to royal rejoicing. Fear and compromise to courage and wholeheartedness. God is the God of reversals. Now, God's ultimate reversal isn't seen in Susa. Now, God's ultimate reversal is seen in the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the devil had the world in a grip of a death sentence. He convinced human beings that disobeying God, that sin was the best way to go. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Without the cross of Christ, the devil has the world in the grip of fear and guilt. Because every man, woman, and child stands before the God who created them, guilty of rebelling against him. 
without the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the devil has left the world with no God and no hope. But with the cross and resurrection, the devil is defeated. Because just as evil Haman was stuck on a stake, so all the evil and sin of our lives was stuck upon the Lord Jesus as he hung upon the cross. So we're free from that death sentence because God himself has borne it for us in the person of his son. And we stand now not in sackcloth and ashes of guilt and fear. No, we stand in the royal robes of Jesus Christ's righteousness, confident to come into the presence of God, secure in his love now and forever. God is the God of reversals. As Paul says in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is the God of reversals. And just as two decrees went out across the Persian Empire, two decrees have gone out across the world. And all of us this morning will be living under one of those decrees. We'll be believing one of those decrees. If you're here today, you're only in one of two places according to the two decrees that have gone across the world. The first one is the decree of death from the evil one. It says this, listen to me, says the devil, just worship yourself. No, really, you're the center of your own life. You're your own God. You, you decide what's right and wrong for you. I don't worry about the consequences because God doesn't care how you live and God doesn't love you. Do what you want. And that's the decree that writes our news. It's the decree that results in billions of people across the world being miserable. The decree of self-love, of self-rule. It's a decree that has no hope. If you think there is hope for the world, then why have crime figures gone up by 13% this year? Because we're so good as human beings at sorting out our own problems. And you might be here today and you're believing that decree. The decree of the evil one. You're better off living your life for yourself. But, but there is a second decree. It's been issued. It's this, that God so loves the world that he's given his one and only son. The evil one has been defeated. Your sin and your death have been conquered. There is life now amongst the people of God. Because the Son of God was so humble that he went to a cross for you. And now he's been exalted and he reigns over his creation. Come to Jesus to know the love and security and acceptance you were created to enjoy. That's the decree of the gospel. Now where do you stand today? Which is the decree? that you're under. Because if you're a Christian here today, you're, you're waiting for the day when everyone will know that's the truth. That day will come. Just as the day of the two decrees came to the Persian Empire, it's the second thing we see. See, God is the God of reversals. He's also the God of relief. Because at the start of chapter 9, nine months have passed. Can you remember those nine? Imagine those nine months of fear for the Jews. You're there and you're waiting for nine months for the day when your next door neighbor, if you have been having an argument over the bin for the last 20 years, your next door neighbor can legally murder you. That's the day you're waiting for. Look at chapter 9 of verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. 
and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The tables were turned. God is the God of reversals. The hated people now become the feared people. Verse 3 of chapter 9. And all of the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Did you see why? Because one of God's people is on the throne of the world now. I wonder how you felt when the first half of chapter 9 was read with all that killing. Did you feel a bit awkward? Maybe you've, you've brought a friend for the first time to CC today and you're thinking, oh no, it's a chapter with a lot of death in it. I should have come next week. Did you feel a bit disgusted? It's right, actually. We shouldn't find slaughter an easy thing to stomach. But have a look at verse 5 with me. Then the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. You see, this isn't revenge. This is justice. The people who die are those who would have otherwise killed the Jews. Who who so hated the people of God. Who were so intent on putting them to death. That they ignored the fact that Mordecai was now second in command to King Xerxes. And kept living as though Haman was still in charge. And so they die for it. And justice in the Bible is always retributive. That, That means the punishment always fits the crime. I think we've absorbed the belief of our culture a lot. Our culture basically believes that human beings are good, and as long as you get the circumstances of their life right, they'll turn out nice. Okay, so as long as they have the right education, the right home environment, the right family, no e-numbers, they'll all become nice, well-adjusted human beings. And therefore, our justice system has the idea of rehabilitation. You put a drug dealer in a prison, you teach him how to be a plumber, and he comes out a drug dealer. And, uh, or we have the idea of uh, uh, sort of looking after society in our justice system. Uh, the idea of shutting people away so that we're kept safe. If you like, it's preventative justice. So we put the person in prison so they, they can't harm anyone else. Problem is, when they get out, they do exactly the same thing. But, but in the Bible, justice is always retributive. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The punishment fits the crime. And the wages of rejecting the one who gives you life is death. The wages of sin is death. And that retributive justice is, I think, why Esther makes her request in verse 13. It it, it makes you realize that maybe she wasn't quite such a sweet little girl. Verse 13, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. She wasn't someone you wanted to stop going out with, was she? You see, the Old Testament tells us in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And so as Haman's sons are impaled, it's a very visual impression that this is not the Jews just getting revenge. No, this is God's curse on his enemies. As there's an extra day for the Jews to defend themselves, this is a picture of the fact that if you are one of God's enemies, you will not escape his justice. In fact, that's 
also shown by a rather strange fact that's repeated at the end of verse 10, at the end of verse 15, at the end of verse 16. I wonder if you can see that in chapter 9, verse 10, 15, and 16. We're told the same thing three times. The, the writer wanted to flag it up to us at the end of verse 16. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. But did not lay their hands on the plunder. Oh, oh judgment's horrific. 75,000 die. But the Jews are not getting their own back and lining their own pockets. No, when God used his people to bring judgment in the Old Testament, he always told them, do not take the plunder, the money, the goods. They're to be devoted to me. You see, they're not to profit from other people's evil. They're simply to bring God's death sentence on his enemies. In fact, God always saves his people through bringing judgment on his enemies. It's what we see in the Bible again and again. Noah and his family are saved in the ark. We're sometimes slow to tell our children that every other human being in the world is drowned under the judgment of God at the same time. The Israelites rejoice as they go through the Red Sea and the water's coming down, crashing on the army of the Egyptians and no one survives. The walls of Jericho fall down and the people of God march in and put to death every single human being who lives in the city. You see, salvation always comes through judgment. It is a dreadful thing, the most serious thing, to be an enemy of the living God. Evil has to be destroyed. And according to the Bible, the source, the incubation center of all evil is the human heart that has rejected the God who loves them. And the reason I guess we often find this so hard in the West is we just live such sheltered, comfortable lives, most of us, that we just forget how evil evil is. You see, we sort of want a nice, tame God who doesn't rock the boat, who doesn't make us feel slightly awkward around our non-Christian friends and relatives, a sort of grandfatherly God who ignores all our little naughtinesses, who basically doesn't make us feel like we're slightly embarrassed about him. But, but God's not nice. God's not tame. God is good. He is so good. He's passionately good. He's determinedly good. He's so good he will not tolerate any evil. And that is very good news. Because can you imagine a God who just let evil go, who just didn't care, who was never going to do anything about the problems of the world. Oh, we all want justice. We all want an end to evil. We all want a God who will hold people to account. We just don't want him to hold us to account. But he will. And our good God is the only hope for our world. And if as Christians we ever doubt that, that God's judgment is a terrible thing, the only place we need to look is the cross of Christ. Jesus didn't do community service to save us. He didn't do a little stent in, sort of, little time in detention. Jesus died a terrible, agonizing death. A death that he would have to die if you or I were the only sinner in the world. That is how serious the judgment of God against sin is. 
Now, the New Testament makes clear that we don't bring God's judgment on the world. We're not to judge other people. We're waiting for the day when the Lord Jesus will return, and everyone will see that he rules his world, and everyone will fear him, and he will bring God's final justice. Because Esther 9 is a picture of that day. The day when those who've set themselves against the living God, who've rejected his lies, love, and who's stuck with the lies of the devil that they're better living life for themselves, when those people will experience a dreadful judgment, a judgment that frankly will make Esther 9 look like a walk in the park. I, I, I often feel, and, and this might sound strange to you, I often feel I could... Or I have a wish that I could feel the, the horror of God's judgment more. You know, when, when the writer of the Hebrews says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because I think if I felt that more, I might plead and pray for my, my, my friends, my family, those I love, who don't know Christ with, with a greater intensity. And if you're here this morning and you've not come to Jesus... I can just say to you that the, the Bible says you're in a dreadfully dangerous position. A dreadfully dangerous position. And can I urge you to come to him? Because our God is the God of reversals. And he's done everything necessary to forgive you anything and everything you've done. That there is nothing that you're ashamed of, nothing that you feel guilty for, that God has not enabled to be forgiven through the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus. And you can come to him today. All you have to do is come and admit, admit that you've turned from him and believe that as he died for you, he has won your forgiveness fully, freely. Come to him today. And for those of us here who, who know this God, we'll look at verse 17 with me of Chapter 9. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. It might sound like a terrible day, but it is actually a day that brought relief to God's people. Because on that day there was relief from their fear. There was relief from their enemies. There was relief from the battle. Relief from our battle. You see, on the day God judges the world, we will rejoice because there'll be no more sin to fight and no more world dragging us away and no more devil to tempt us. All the suffering will be over. The Bible says we'll be at rest. We'll only know God's love. We'll only love one another perfectly. We'll live in a world that will be totally harmonious. Now, the Jews in Susa, they only taste a, a little of that relief. But, but the last thing we need to see today is that our God is the God of rejoicing. I wonder if you saw that repeated in Esther 9. In verse 17, we read it's a day of feasting and rejoicing. It says the same thing in verse 18, a day of feasting and joy. And then verse 19, in case we don't get it, it's a day of feasting and joy. In fact, the whole chapter of chapter 9, the rest of it is given over to instructions about how to have a fantastic party because of what God has done for you. 
Uh, So Mordecai, in verse 20, records these events, and he sends letters out to the whole of the empire. At that time, verse 22, when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and and as the month when their sorrow turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. Sorrow to joy, mourning to celebration. A day when the battle is over. They call it the Feast of Purim. Did you see that in verse 24? For Haman, the son of Hamathadah, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. If you remember back a few chapters, Haman had cast lots to decide which day to kill the Jews on. But, but now they have a feast called Lot or Luck, simply to show that there is no luck in the world, but God has ordered the events to rescue his people. They're not rescued because they say touch wood. They're rescued because they trust their loving God. And being a member of God's people, well, it's open to anyone who'll come. Verse 27 The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and all their descendants and all who joined them without fail observe these two days in the year. You see, if if you today decide to join the people of God, if you decide to come to the Lord Jesus today, if you join God's people, you have rejoicing in the face of judgment, not fear because it's the day when all the battles of this life are finished with. And look how it's rubbed in. You can't fail to rejoice on this day, says Mordecai. Look at verse 28. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. Do you get that? And these days of Purim, just to underline it, should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Just to rub it in, Queen Esther sends out another letter saying exactly the same thing. Don't ever forget that God has rescued you. Don't ever forget there's going to be a day when you will enjoy his presence forever. Now, now the Jews still celebrate Purim today. But, But sadly, they've missed the greatest act of rescue that we're supposed to remember. Because do you remember Jesus with his disciples the night before he died? He told them, Take, eat this bread in remembrance that I'm giving my body for you. To to drink this wine and remember that my blood's been poured out in the new covenant, that you can know the forgiveness of sins fully, forever with me. And he promised them one day he would gather with them and there'd be a day of rejoicing. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we're to remember and rejoice. But, but I think our joy will be proportional to the relief that we feel. You see, if, if the cross of the Lord Jesus just is, forgives your, your naughtiness, then your joy is limited. I don't know about you, but as we studied Esther, I very quickly made myself into Mordecai. You know, the sort of slightly half-hearted member of God's people who comes good in the end. And then, then last weekend, the Lord decided to show me I was Haman. As I, as I struggled to celebrate uh, the success of a, a fellow minister and felt a bit bitter inside. As, as I couldn't control my temper when, a, when my small child wouldn't bow to my will. You see, I, I'm Haman. I'm not naturally a God lover. No, I'm naturally 
someone who loves to be God. I, I love to receive glory and to worship myself. And yet God is the God of reversal. So in Christ, he took my punishment and he gave me his royal righteous status. At such a cost. See, it's only when you see that Jesus went through hell on earth for you. Only when you stand at the gates of hell yourself and see what it cost Christ to die for you, that you will rejoice as they rejoice in Susa. See, there is one on the throne of heaven for us. Just as in chapter 10 we learned that there's one on the throne of the kingdom of Persia for the Jews. That there is one who works for the good of his people and speaks up for the welfare of all the Jews. He's not Mordecai. Now Romans 8.34 tells us, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so as we close, we need to remember these Jews who first received this book, they were in exile. They were under a foreign rule. They were oppressed as God's people. And they needed to know that God was for them. That that in the past, he had miraculously rescued them by turning history on its head. And in the present, he was for them, and he was going to keep them and protect them and love them. And in the future, they were going to go to be with him because he overruled all of history. See, we began Esther with a party thrown by King Xerxes, and it was a party that looked quite attractive to us. It was the party of the world that gave you wealth and wine and women and fun, and sometimes as we look at the party of the world as God's people, we feel hard done by. But as we end Esther, there's another party. It's the party of God's people, the party that we will rejoice in forever. And how do we rejoice in that now? We remember the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember that he is seated at the Father's right hand and he is for us. And we look forward to the day when we will just rejoice with him forever. We will rejoice with him in his perfect love. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.